Thank you, Pastor Dave. Good morning. If we haven't met, my name is also Dave, and I am one of the pastors here, keeping the quotas of Dave alive and well in churches, you know. The last church I was at, my lead pastor, his name was? Yeah. This is the Dave that the Lord has made. I have a shirt that says that. My sister-in-law gave it to me. She was like a little tentative to give me. She like thought I would think it was like, you know, not a good thing. I'm like, I love it. But if I'm the Dave the Lord has made, what does that make the other ones, right? So, yeah. You know, many years ago, uh, I was at Costco. Andrew and I were there, and we were paying for our groceries. And as one is, needs to do at Costco, you hand the cashier your membership card, and they... They look at the picture and they make sure that it lines up with who you are. And um, when I gave the cashier my card, she looked at it and then she looked at me and she looked at it again. And it was very obvious that the, the picture on the card looked nothing like I did in person. And she held it up. And she looked at me. She says, and so you're, you're trying to tell me that this is you? This was her I gotcha moment. Right? That moment where somebody tries to use somebody else's membership, right? So that they can have their, you know, their Costco shopping spree without paying for the membership. And this wasn't only just her I gotcha moment, but for everyone in line behind us. Oh, they were giddy. You should have seen the looks on their faces, right? As they snickered and some made remarks, right? This was them silently, but also not so silently, judging Andrea and I. Problem was, they didn't know the full story. Indeed, the the picture on the membership, it was me. But the reason that it didn't look like me was that I was in the middle of going through my chemotherapy regime. So I didn't have a single hair on my head nor on my face. All of my features were all puffy and bloated because of the steroids that I had been taking. And so I looked nothing like the picture in the photograph. So I simply grabbed my wallet and I showed her my driver's license and I said, yes, this happens to be me as well. And that seemed to placate her and so she processed our order and we moved on. Now, that was a very memorable moment for me, but I wasn't terribly upset with this cashier because I knew all too well how easy it is to jump to conclusions and also how tempting it is for us to judge others. You know, someone flies past me on the highway, particularly if they have one of those little green ends on the back of their vehicle, and I'm prone to thinking, well, that's just some young, aggressive driver. And there's been occasions where a few kilometers down the road, I see they're pulled over, little blue and red lights are flashing, and I feel so happy and satisfied that they're getting what they deserve. However, I wonder if my uh, opinion about what you know, what they've been doing, if that would be altered, if I knew their story, right? Perhaps they felt like they had a reason for driving so fast. And I have to admit, I'm certainly not as judgmental of my own speeding when I do it. I feel totally justified for that. 
And you and I, we live in this world where we love to play judge and jury. Some of the most popular television shows are those where there are contestants and viewers can text in who they want to move forward. Or social media clips, catching people doing inappropriate things. They go viral because our society believes that their public shaming is somehow justified. We assume far too often that we are well-informed well enough to make assessments of other people's behavior and choices and that our opinion is somehow valid or if we were in their shoes, we would do better. But in today's passage, Jesus tells us that there is no room in his kingdom for this kind of fault-finding way of thinking that we are prone to. He warns us that we need to eradicate it from our lives, and he instructs his followers that they are to live a different way. Because in his kingdom, God's kingdom, it desires helpers and not haters. And so if you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 7. We're going to be looking at verses 1 to 6. If you have your Bibles, you can keep them open there, but the text will also be on the screen above. These are the words of our Lord Jesus. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way that you judge others, you will be judged. And the measure which with you and the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, hey, let me take the speck out of your eye, while all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. This is the word of our Lord. Well, if you're just joining us, this passage is a part of Jesus's Sermon on the Mount. Uh, it follows on the heels of his travels throughout the region of Galilee, where when he traveled, Jesus preached to people, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has drawn near. Now, the word repent, it simply means to Turn around. Stop going in the direction that you're heading and set a new course. And the course that Jesus is inviting people to set is to become citizens of God's kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. And the only way that you can get citizenship in this kingdom is by following Jesus. Now, the Sermon on the Mount is his description to his followers of how they are to do that, how they live as kingdom citizens, the way this way of life, it is so countercultural that some people have described God's kingdom as upside down. But in short, the policies of this kingdom emphasize two things. First, repentance, which I've said is following his way and no one else's. And second, righteousness. And as we have discussed often, biblical righteousness is all about being in a right relationship. Yes, with God, but it also includes in a right relationship with others, with ourselves, and the creation. 
And here, in this morning's passage, we see Jesus calls for greater righteousness with others means suspending our judgmental attitudes. He says in verse 1, Do not judge, or you too will be judged. Now, I have often heard these verses used by people to suggest that no one should judge another, as if being critical of anyone's behavior or lifestyle choices is completely out of bounds because Jesus does say, do not judge. However, the Greek verb to judge, which is krino, it can mean two things. It can mean to analyze and evaluate, or it can mean to condemn or avenge. We are clearly to do the former throughout Scripture. We are to analyze. We are to evaluate. But we are to leave the latter to God alone. Jesus isn't calling us to suspend all judgment, our capacity to discern between good and bad, right and wrong. These are God-given abilities. These are gifts from him. And so they should be used not only for ourselves, but to support and help other people. It would be ludicrous if I didn't evaluate my children's conduct, if I didn't discourage them from wrong behavior or encourage them towards making good choices. I am sure that their lives would be far worse without the sort of judgment that Andrea and I give to our children. And the same thing applies to me. I need other people to speak into my life with wisdom and discernment or judgment, whatever you want to call it. I need that. And believe it or not, so do you. Proverbs 15.31, if you listen to constructive criticism, you will be at home among the wise. So if Jesus isn't saying that we shouldn't suspend all judgment, then what exactly is he getting at here? I think the, judgment, the judging he is speaking against here is that condemning, destructive, fault-finding criticism. A judgment that isn't concerned with helping other people, but rather it pulls them down in order to make ourselves feel better. I believe that Jesus still has his sights set on that scribal, pharisaical way of life that he so vehemently opposed and attacked earlier in his Sermon on the Mount. The scribes and the Pharisees, they promoted an outward appearance of virtue instead of the transformational righteousness that starts from within and that works its way out that Jesus taught his followers. The Pharisees taught that a person's value is, in, is entirely judged by their words and actions based on appearances. Now, Jesus doesn't dismiss our words and actions. He takes them very seriously. He thinks they're definitely important. But Jesus places a greater value on what's going on inside, on renewed hearts and minds. He wants his followers' lives to be transformed by the Spirit, where good deeds are the result of abiding in Christ and following the ways of his kingdom. But being judgmental, it's not only a sin, but it is a disease to our souls. If you want to see what Jesus thinks about this and the pharisaical way of doing life, just read Matthew 23. I'd encourage you to go home and, and read that this afternoon. It's shocking what he says to the Pharisees. He calls them hypocrites, blind guides, even children of hell. 
Why does Jesus get so upset about this? It's because their fault-finding, condemning, hypercritical judgment, it's the kiss of death to other people. It never heals. It never gives life. It never breeds hope. It only causes pain, shame, and despair. And Jesus says of them, he says, they tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves, they're never willing to lift even a finger to help move them. And then he warns them. He says, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You yourselves do not enter in, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. You see how the pharisaical kind of judgment keeps people out of God's kingdom. There is nothing worse than this. This is why Jesus is so harsh, because God's kingdom It's for helpers, not haters. And that's why Jesus gives us such a dire warning here in verse 2 when he says, in the same way that you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Now, this isn't the first time that Jesus has spoken about the reciprocal nature of his kingdom. Back in Matthew 5, 7, he said, Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. And then later in 6.14, he says, If you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. That sounds really good, right? But then there's the flip side of that, that Jesus says in verse 15, But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. And here we see that the standard we use in judging is the standard by which we will be judged. So if you and I are going to be overly critical of other people, then someday, on the day when it really matters, that same sort of harsh evaluation will be used for us. Oh, mercy. James 2. There will be no mercy for those who have not shown mercy to others. But if you have been merciful, then God will be merciful when he judges you. So when we are tempted to judge others like this, without caring about their welfare, but just being critical for the sake of it, or just in order to make ourselves feel better, we would be wise to heed Jesus' warning because God's kingdom, it's for the helpers, not the haters. He then goes on to inform his audience why they're such hypocrites when they judge other people. And he uses this illustration to highlight a condition that they have, but they are most likely unaware of it. It's also a condition that we have, and we're most likely unaware of it too. He says in verse 3, Why do you take a look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and you pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, hey, let me take that speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? What great imagery. If it wasn't around such a a harsh warning, it would be very comical. You can imagine his audience saying to themselves, what plank, Jesus? I don't have a plank in my eye, at least not that I can see exactly 
You cannot see it. But Jesus can. And he's the great physician. He's the ultimate ophthalmologist. And he has diagnosed each of us with a serious case of plank eye. In this passage, in the passage that Reese preached on last week, he spoke about how Jesus made a statement about how the eye is the lamp of the body and how materialism, it darkens our vision. This is because the eye is a metaphor for spiritual insight. And here Jesus is saying that there is something that clouds our vision. It blinds us from seeing our own spiritual condition. And only once it is removed can we see clearly enough to help other people. The problem is the sin that each of us has and continues to commit. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 1 John 1.8 says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth, it's not in us. I don't know how you have sinned, but I do know my own condition and I know it too well. And if you are anything like me, then you know that you are in desperate need of help and not hate if our condition is to get any better. Fortunately for us, the Bible says in John 3.17 that God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but he sent his son into the world that the world would be saved through him. Do you see what that's saying? That Jesus didn't come to heap on the hate he came to give us the help that each of us needs. And so the remedy for plank eye, it's Jesus. Believe in Jesus and you'll recognize this diagnosis in you. Trust in Jesus and he will forgive you of your sin. Follow Jesus and he will give you his Holy Spirit who will heal and transform you. First, by helping you to remove the plank from your own eyes, healing your soul, and then equipping you so that you can come alongside and assist others. And that's exactly what Jesus wants from his followers, right? For us to serve others, to heal, to help restore them, not to condemn them, because his kingdom is for the helpers, not for the haters. And in this passage, he gives us three ways that we can become these helpful people. He says, first... We need to recognize the other as a brother or a sister. We recognize the other as a brother or a sister. Three times, Jesus refers to the people in this passage that we are tempted to criticize as our brother. The point that Jesus is getting at is that we are supposed to be a sibling to them. We are not to be their judge. Right? They are family. They are not someone on trial. Now, for many of us, it happens to be our family members who are the very people we often have the easiest time being critical of. But Jesus wants us to show the same sort of sacrificial love and care for other people that he has shown us. God's love throughout Scripture towards his people is often described, his has said, as loving kindness. That's how we're supposed to behave towards others. 
Before Jesus died, he washed his disciples' feet and he said to them, You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is who I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Now, washing feet, this was the job of the lowest ranking servant in the household to wash the feet of guests. And yet, here Jesus is, the master. He's performing this duty for his disciples to demonstrate how we are to serve others with humility. And so serving like this, it places their needs above our own pride. It also removes any pedestal that we might be tempted to look down on them from, and it places us on common ground. So we need to view others as beloved children of God. They are our siblings rather than seeing them for their faults. And this is the first steps towards being the kind of helper that Jesus wants you and I to be. So we see the other as a brother or a sister. Second, Jesus tells us to take a look in the mirror. Take a look in the mirror. Actually, he doesn't say that. He says, remove the plank from your eye. But you can't do that without taking a hard look in the mirror. The Bible says the greatest command is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your strength, your soul, and your mind, and to love your neighbor as yourself. But to love our neighbors as ourselves, we must not only know our neighbors, we must know ourselves, especially the inner self, the nature of our heart and our soul and our mind. And to do that, it requires a lot of self-reflection, which is comprised of contemplation and introspection. Some people call this soul-searching. And this can be, for many of us, difficult, slow-going work. And it's this ongoing process. And for disciples of Jesus, it's a continuous discipline. For some of us, we, or probably for lots of us, we probably need someone to come alongside us to help us do this, a mentor or a spiritual coach or advisor to aid us in this kind of work. It also means that we have to take the time to see where we have gone wrong ourselves and why. So we have to take a look in the mirror. So Jesus tells us to see the other as a brother or a sister, to take, in a, take a look in the mirror, and then he says, by understanding our own struggles and temptations. This is essential if we're going to help other people. Here is his third point. We help others out of our weakness. We help them out of our weakness. Like so many other things in God's countercultural kingdom, helping others out of weakness, this seems counterintuitive, but God, he delights in being countercultural, right? Blessed are the poor, the weak, the meek, the mourners. He's so countercultural. The Apostle Paul experienced how being weak was actually what made him an effective kingdom helper when he wrote 2 Corinthians 12. He says in verse 7 In order to keep me from being conceited, I was given a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to, keep, uh, to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. 
for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, that's when I'm strong. Do you know what happens when you try to remove a speck from a brother or sister's eye without looking in the mirror yourself first? A log jam. That's funny. Come on, guys. <laughs> but when we recognize, but it's true though, when we recognize the planks that we have had in our own eyes first, it not only helps us to remove them, it reminds us that we have also been wounded, that we are also weak. And it's when we recognize our weakness that it enables us to come alongside other people and to help them from a place of compassion. And compassion is key to being a helper. Those who are known for their compassion, they come to be regarded as safe people rather than critics. It is the compassionate people who are trusted by others to help them remove their own specks from their eyes. You know, I've told the story before about how when I was a young adult, I had a pastor who came alongside me. He noticed how I was overly critical and sarcastic with my, my brother, my actual brother, not just a brother in the Lord. And he called me out on it. And I just remember, like, his diagnosis of what I was doing. It was painful. However, I listened to him because I knew that he didn't take great joy in pointing this out to me. But because his humility was obvious and that he would have been the first person to call himself out on that kind of thing, I was willing to receive it. His love for me was unquestionable. Proverbs 27, 6 says, Wounds from a friend can be trusted but an enemy multiplies kisses. We help others out of our weakness. Then Jesus has this last verse for us this morning. He says, Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. And if it wasn't enough with specks and logs, now it's pigs and dogs, right? But the sentence, it's a little confusing. Historically, dogs and pigs were seen as unclean animals, and these terms were generally used to refer to Gentiles and pagans. And so the church has actually misused these verses in order to keep certain people out of the fellowship. But they have it completely wrong, right? Jesus' kingdom, it is open to all who meet the criteria of trusting in him by repenting and pursuing righteousness regardless of ethnicity and culture. What Jesus is saying in these verses is that he wants his followers to recognize that the help that we want to give people, it may not always be received well. In fact, it may not be received at all. Whether it's sharing the gospel or well-intentioned counsel done from a place of humility, there will be times where it is rejected and perhaps the person that you are trying to help will turn on you and you will feel trampled. Perhaps you might even feel torn to pieces by them. 
Jesus is saying that we should not persist with those who refuse our help so that we don't become discouraged and turn from being helpers altogether. Or even worse than that, become haters, which it's so easy to become when you've been hurt by another. Rather than persist in helping those who do not want it, you and I would be better to turn our attention to those who will receive it. You know, I've been a pastor for over 16 years, and there have been plenty of times where I have tried to help people in this kind of fashion, particularly as a youth and young adults pastor, walking alongside students, and like that pastor did for me when I was a young adult, offering them some feedback on something that I had observed in their life. And some just didn't want it. They refused to consider what I had to offer. Often they refused in painful ways to me. However, at the same time, there were often others who were just waiting in the wings, desperate and willing to be helped. And if I had spent all my time chasing those who didn't want my help rather than helping those who welcomed it, it would have gotten pretty old pretty quick. And the reality is we only have so much time and energy and resources, and Jesus is calling us to use them wisely. Proverbs 9.8 says, Do not rebuke mockers or they will hate you, but rebuke the wise and they will love you. I think many of us, we've given up, whether it's sharing the gospel or discipling others, and we just leave it to other people to do that because when we have tried, we have been met with this kind of rejection, which is often painful, and we become discouraged. But Jesus tells us here, don't give up. Instead, redirect your help. God, he will continue to go to incredible lengths to help those that we cannot. Our Father, he is the good shepherd. He is the one who leaves the 99 to go after that one sheep who wandered the way. But we are not. Our responsibility is to humbly help those that he puts in our path who will receive it. So Christ's words to us this morning is rather than judging others, our duty as his followers is to serve one another in humility. Recognize our own weakness, for that's where compassion begins. But that is also the place where God's power is perfected. And then we can truly be the helpers his kingdom requires. I invite the worship team to come up. I invite you to stand with me as we pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for your son. Thank you for the words that he spoke and that Matthew recorded them. And even thank you that you often spoke hard words like this, confusing words, challenging words. But again, where else can we go but to you? Because you are the one who speak the words of life. And I pray this morning that each of us would see this is truly where life is. A flourishing life is in you and your kingdom ways. I pray that you would give each of us the humility not only to be helpers, 
to humbly come alongside others and to walk alongside them and speak life to them, but also give us the humility to be helped ourselves because, God, you know we need it. We thank you for your love for us, how you never leave or forsake us. You never give up on us. We pray, Lord, that we would never give up on you. We love you and pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.